Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, this is uh, this is lecture number five out of um, sixty. So we've started, but uh, we're still we're still in the early stages. Uh, theology is uh, cumulative and uh, encyclopedic, and uh, we're trying to build uh, little building blocks, and uh, we're still. We're still at the very start. Uh, we're talking tonight about the Bible. About uh, last week, we were talking about inspiration, but this uh, this evening, I want us to think about the perfection of Scripture, and uh, in particular, um, the, the attributes of infallibility and uh, inerrancy. Uh, but before we actually get there, there are some other uh, steps that we need uh, to climb. Uh, you'll see on the opening page um, some uh, statements from the Chicago uh, statement on uh, biblical inerrancy, and uh, I'll be referring to some of those statements uh, a little later in the um, uh, in uh, the lecture. Uh, so we're on the perfection of Scripture. Uh, the Bible is. Uh, breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, or uh, the text in Peter that we've been looking at, uh, that uh, holy men uh, of old wrote as they were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now we want to ask if the Bible is uh, God's Word, if all the Bible, if we talked last week about plenary inspiration, that is plenus, Latin meaning full, uh, that all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the out-breathing of God so that the Bible is God speaking, uh, it necessarily follows uh, that we need to consider, therefore, uh, the quality of that which is breathed out by God as being perfect. So let's begin uh, with a classic statement from the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 1 and section 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life uh, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now let's, uh, let's flesh that out a little. Um, the Bible doesn't contain all truth. Uh, that sounds like something that could get me into a lot of trouble, ex except that you need to hear carefully what I'm saying. Uh, there is more truth than there is contained in the Bible. Uh, so for example, and forgive me, but uh, I was a mathematician at one time, uh, Laplace transformations, if those of you, hands up those of you who know what a Laplace transformation is, Rosemary does for sure. Um, uh, if you can remember that formula, uh, which I can't, uh, it's in the backwaters of my mind and uh, I've, I've actually forgotten everything that I ever knew about it. Um, but, but that is a formula and it's true, uh, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, you all know E equals MC squared, uh, the relationship between mass, uh, the so-called mass energy equivalence. Uh, it's now regarded as uh, one of the foundation stones of uh, science. It is regarded as truth, as true, but it's not in uh, the Bible. Uh, 
uh, or the chemical formula of uh, benzene, uh, C6H6. Uh, that also is uh, true, but it's not in uh, the Bible. Or that Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born on November the 30th, 1874. is also true, uh, uh, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, so the Bible doesn't contain all truth. Uh, what the Bible contains is true, but it doesn't contain all truth. Uh, the Bible doesn't contain all religious truth, uh, in the sense that there is more religious truth than is actually found in the Bible. God only reveals a little uh, of himself. Our minds are finite. They couldn't possibly contain all that there is to know uh, of God uh, and his ways. Uh, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong uh, unto us and to our children. Deuteronomy 29, uh, 29. Uh, the Bible is a perfect rule of faith and life, directing the church how to glorify and enjoy God. Uh, the, the Bible is adequate for every area of life. Uh, for doctrine, what it is that we need to believe. Uh, the Bible is uh, perfectly adequate to tell us all the things that we need to believe. Uh, the Bible is perfectly adequate to tell us all that we need to experience. Um, I'm thinking here of our affectional response to truth. Uh, the Bible is uh, perfectly adequate to tell us all that we need to do in terms of behavior, in terms of ethics, in terms of what's right and what's uh, wrong, what constitutes correct behavior. Uh, the Bible uh, contains and is adequate for, uh, for worship, and whether that is uh, corporate worship or familial worship or private worship. Uh, or church government and the organization of the church. And I'm just, I'm just giving you a few examples here of the kinds of things that the Bible is authoritative in. It is, it, is a, it is a source of authority in doctrine. It's a source of authority in ethics. It's a source of authority in worship and in church government. Uh, then again, we're still elaborating uh, this statement of the confession. Uh, the Bible contains all that may be imposed uh, upon the conscience. Now, this is a very important uh, concept. It's particularly important, actually, in the history of this nation and in the founding fathers. It was a, it was a principle that was very important to the pilgrim fathers in particular, um, that only God is Lord of the conscience. Uh, the, the most important statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith is this, that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. That which I may impose and insist upon uh, and impose sanctions for non-compliance, only, only God can do that. God alone is Lord of the conscience. There is in Scripture what is known as a regulative principle. Now, we sometimes think of that in particular in relationship to worship, but actually it's a much broader principle than that, um, that God alone can dictate what is right and wrong. God alone can dictate what is true and untrue. 
so in particular, if we apply that in the area of worship, as the confession does in chapter 21, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will. Uh, so what the divines are saying is that we can't insist uh, on the consciences of others a form of worship that God himself has not laid down in his word. And God has laid down in his word certain principles about worship. And those alone are the, are the principles that you can insist upon and enforce sanctions for non-compliance. Uh, uh, we'll come back to that issue of worship much later on. Here we're only thinking about how the Bible operates as, uh, as a system of authority. Uh, that that God, God alone uh, is Lord of the conscience. So God alone can dictate um, the way of salvation or the way of worship or, or what constitutes uh, valid uh, membership within the church of God. I remember when I was a, a student back in 1977 or so, uh, I, I was going to preach at this uh, church. Uh, I wasn't ordained. I was a student uh, for the ministry and uh, I was going to preach at this country church. And uh, in the little footnotes was a little proviso. Um, he may not preach if he has a beard. Uh, in other words, uh, the, you know, this, was, this was a violation of the regulatory principle. Uh, they were enforcing something upon the conscience, consciences of individuals over and above what God had laid down in his word. Now that is legalism. When you impose something over and above what God has laid down in his word. Uh, one further point here. Uh, about how the Bible operates as a, as a system of authority. The Bible is the only rule uh, of faith and practice. Now, we have confessions, uh, and the statement uh, that I've just been citing from the Westminster Confession, God alone is Lord of the conscience, left it free from the doctrines and commandments of, of men. Uh, that's a confessional statement. It's, it comes from the 1646 Westminster Confession uh, of Faith. Uh, but confessions... Um, and books of church order and the like uh, may be constitutional documents uh, of a church, but they are subordinate documents. In other words, they can be amended. Um, the confession of faith is not infallible. Uh, only the scriptures are infallible. It is the only rule of faith and practice. Now, confessions have their place. Creeds have their place. Books of church order have their place. We are to do things decently and in order. Uh, in, in, uh, in the church, um, but they are subordinate to uh, the scriptures. Now, uh, when we talk about the perfection of scripture, let's, uh, let's build a little here, and I want, I'm aiming at a definition. Um, strictly speaking, we are talking here about the perfection of the original autographs. We are, we are talking about the perfection as they were originally written uh, in Hebrew or uh, in Aramaic, bits of Ezra, bits of uh, Daniel uh, were written in Aramaic, uh, or in uh, the case of the New Testament, in Greek. Uh, we're not talking here about the perfection of any given translation of Scripture. We're talking about as they were originally written by Moses or David or, or Ezekiel or Matthew or Paul or John. 
Uh, so we're talking about the, uh, there's a technical term here, there'll be a pop quiz uh, coming up shortly, uh, so do pay attention. Uh, there's a technical phrase here, autographer, uh, meaning the, original, the originals, uh, none of which we have, and uh, we don't have a single original. Um, but when we talk about uh, the perfection uh, of Scripture, we're actually talking about the perfection of the autographer. So the confession puts it this way. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which is the native language of the people of old, they probably should have also added Aramaic because bits of it are also in Aramaic. And the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations being immediately inspired by God. So it's the original autographer uh, that were inspired. Now, from the original autographer, we have to talk about another technical term here, the transmission of scripture. How, how do you get from the original autographer, none of which we have, to the Bible in our hands? And we, we have to talk about the transmission and uh, here we are governed by a doctrine of providence. By his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. Now that's an awkward statement because I've pulled it. It's a subordinate clause of a much longer section of the confession. And just pulled that out. Uh, because, but that's what the confession is referring to. Um, that in the in the providence of God, there has been a singular care in the transmission of Scripture. Now, uh, what you have are copies of copies of copies. Uh, you, have, uh, you have documents that go back to the 4th century or the 5th century, uh, which are copies of copies of copies. And you've got, uh, you, you've got people, monks and others, uh, who have been by hand copying from other documents, and, and, and eventually they go back to the original autographs, which in God's providence we actually don't uh, have. Now, in the process of that transmission, all kinds of things can and actually do um, go wrong. I've given you a whole list of the kinds of things that do go wrong. Uh, ditography, writing twice what should have been written once, and a good example would be writing uh, latter instead of uh, later. Uh, latter means nearest the end, later means after something else, so inserting another, another, um, another letter. Uh, into, the, into the word, or uh, fission, improperly dividing one word into two words, an example, nowhere into now, here. Uh, we've all done this, and, uh, and uh, your phone uh, will do it for you, irritatingly, um, when, they, when, they, when they automatically correct, and I, and I, I detest it. Uh, because I use a lot of technical words when I'm using my phone and it all, always uh, automatically corrects to something I was definitely not trying to say. Uh, fusion, uh, hypoglyph hypography, uh, ho ho um, homophony, uh, homophony, or however you want to pronounce that. Uh, writing a word with a different uh, meaning for another word when both words have the exact same pronunciation, meet and meet have the exact same sound but different meanings, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so in, in the transmission, the copying of manuscripts, all kinds of things go, go wrong. You, you, uh, you take your eye off the page, and uh, the last word was the word uh, here, and then you look back at the page and you see uh, the word here, but actually it's three lines further down, and you've just missed an entire sentence. Uh, you, you understand how these, uh, how these errors in transmission...
Now, in actual fact, um, what you then have to do is to engage in a science of comparing these manuscripts to try and ascertain what the original might have been. And there is, uh, there is an immense amount of agreement. Uh, there is a 99.5% agreement as to what the original would have been simply through this uh, meticulous science of textual uh, criticism. Um, we have a uh, look at the table uh, there uh, of uh, Homer's Iliad, for example. We have 643 copies. These are, these, are, these are manuscripts, not the original. We don't have the original of Homer's uh, Iliad. What we have are, are copies uh, from several centuries later or from Aristotle. Uh, we have uh, 49 copies spanning 1,400 years, right, of, of copies. Um, of the New Testament, we have 24,000 uh, manuscripts. Now, some of these manuscripts are only of uh, particular verses. Some of them are of chapters. Some of them are of uh, several chapters. Some of them are, are quotations of Scripture in other people's writings. Um, but uh, as you can see, we've got a, we've got a, a much better uh, degree of certainty about the original when it comes to the New Testament than uh, Euripides or Aristotle or Plato uh, or Homer or the Gallic Wars uh, of, uh, of Caesar or whatever. Um, so, so there's absolutely no place here for skepticism about the science of textual uh, criticism. So there are the autographer, there's the transmission uh, process uh, in which in God's singular care and providence um, we, we, may, we may engage in uh, an enormous amount of certainty about the original text. Uh, and then thirdly there is translation. Uh, no single translation, and forgive me if I step on uh, toes here, but not even the venerable uh, uh, King James Version uh, of 1611 uh, can claim to be, uh, to be infallible. Uh, and indeed, in the King James Version, uh, there, there was no manuscript available to them for the final few verses of Revelation, and uh, they had to revert to the Latin uh, Vulgate, the, 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 the Catholic Bible, in order, in order to get some kind of translation for the final verses of, uh, of Revelation. Now notice uh, what the Confession says, bottom of page 4, because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto an interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God, to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. Vulgar here meaning common or everyday language, uh, not, uh, not uh, a language that nobody speaks anymore, but uh, the language that everybody speaks, the common language of the day. This is uh, what the Confession says is an obligation that rests upon the church. The church must translate the scriptures. Uh, so there's an imperative then uh, on uh, the church to translate the scriptures. Now, a couple of qualifications at the top of page 5. Uh, the need for the illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, in order for us to ascertain the perfection of scripture, uh, we need more than just the phenomena of scripture 
uh, about which we can be, we, we can be certain. Uh, but we also need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And then it adds, there are some circumstances to be ordered by the light of nature. Um, uh, light of nature meaning here the use of reason uh, and reasonableness uh, and Christian uh, prudence. Not everything in the Bible. Um, the, the Bible doesn't tell us absolutely everything. Some of, the things, some of the things have to be worked out. The Bible gives you principles. It tells you, for example, to be, to be wise. It tells you uh, to put others before yourself. And it gives you these general principles. And, and it's using and employing those general principles uh, that, we, that we ascertain uh, God's guidance. Now, you know, uh, we, we could go off now on a, on a tangent. Um, I, I, I just don't have time to go off on a tangent here about guidance. Um, but uh, guidance is employing the principles of Scripture, the general principles of Scripture, and applying them to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Um, uh, and they are to be guided by the light of nature, by what is reasonable, uh, implying a standard of reasonableness and Christian prudence. So let me, let me move on. Uh, scripture plus nothing, unto which nothing at any time is to be added. Uh, and the confession here makes a statement, uh, whether by new revelations of the Spirit uh, in the 17th century, in the 1640s, they were thinking of people like Quakers and Shakers and Ranters uh, and various, uh, various kinds of occult uh, folk that were about in the 1640s that were claiming direct revelations of the Holy Spirit. God is saying to me. Well, if God is saying to me, uh, then, then I, have, I have absolutely no, uh, no uh, room here except to say I must obey. I must comply. Uh, that's why I, 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 don't think, I don't think preachers should say, you know, God has told me to preach on this text. Um, actually, actually, it's more likely to be that uh, he, he had Saturday night fever. Uh, the, te- the text he was going to preach on uh, and, and had announced he was going to preach on just didn't, uh, didn't come, it didn't flow. Uh, and therefore, to baptize this last-minute sermon that's been pulled out of the barrel, uh, you sort of baptized it with the aura, you know, God has spoken uh, to me. Uh, I think God speaks to us in the Scriptures. God speaks to us by His Word. And the confessional statement here is uh, that uh, nothing is to be added to that. We can claim no direct um, revelations uh, of the Holy Spirit. Now, God speaks to us in providence. He, he, he nudges us in providence, but uh, nothing is to be added to the Scripture that has the same corroborative uh, um, evid- evidentiary support of a thus saith the Lord. Uh, or it goes on to say traditions of men. And here, of course, it's talking about uh, the way the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval era uh, added 
uh, not just the Bible, but also the traditions of the church and the interpretations of the church. And uh, when the Pope uh, speaks, for example, uh, ex cathedra and makes pronouncements, ex cathedral uh, statements that have the same weight and bearing as uh, the scriptures. So it's denying, uh, it's denying that there is any other source of perfection or any other source of authority over and above um, the word uh, of God. Now, uh, we segue to an, another area, uh, perspicuity. Uh, to be perspicuous is to be clear, uh, from the Latin perspicare, to see through. Um, the, 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 it's, the, this is a statement about the clarity of Scripture. And uh, the reformers here and uh, the Westminster divines, the Puritans who followed them in the 17th century, uh, uh, emphasized the clarity of Scripture, that the Bible that the Bible is to be put into the hands of common people, of unlearned people, uh, that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means... Uh, one of the means would be something like this, uh, going to church and listening to a sermon, going to a Bible study, buying a commentary, reading a commentary, asking questions of somebody who has done some study in this area. All of those are due use of ordinary means, that the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now, you understand what's going on here. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period had said that, that uh, the, the Bible was not to be translated into the vulgar tongue. It was, to be, it was to be kept in the Latin Vulgate, which hardly anybody read Latin except, the, except learned folk. The, the common uh, person who went to uh, Mass on Sunday would only know, uh, would only know uh, a few words of Latin, uh, the Ave Maria and the Paternoster perhaps, and, and that by rote. Uh, rather than actually understanding what it is they were saying. Uh, and that gave power, and it certainly gave control into the hands of the church. Uh, the church was in control of the people. Uh, the Reformation turned that uh, upside down and said, uh, no, that the Bible is to be put into the hands of the unlearned. Uh, and uh, Tyndale, of course, was burnt uh, for translating the Bible uh, into English. Now, not everything in Scripture is clear in itself, uh, I have no idea what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11 about the covering of the woman's head. I can, I can give you uh, three or four different opinions uh, that have been put forth, uh, but I've, I've absolutely no certainty whatsoever what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, you know, it's one of those uh, 15 questions, uh, top 15 questions I want to ask the Apostle Paul when I see him in heaven. Paul, what in the world were you talking about in 1 Corinthians uh, 11? Uh, Gog and Magog in uh, Ezekiel 38. Uh, I have a, a little more certainty uh, about uh, the thousand years in Revelation 20, but, but perhaps, perhaps it's the certainty that it's my opinion rather than the certainty of, of, of it actually being, being correct. Uh, I've actually written a book on Revelation 20, uh, so I've, I've committed my certainty into, uh, into print. Uh, but not everything in Scripture is, uh, is, uh, is clear. And uh, not every scripture is equally clear to everybody. 
Uh, some people have greater clarity about some passages than, than other Christians do. Scripture's perspicuity doesn't uh, mean that the church doesn't need theologians. Uh, it, it, the doctrine of perspicuity doesn't mean that you don't need preachers or you don't need uh, theologians or, or professional theologians uh, like uh, Dr. Ferguson. Uh, nor does it mean uh, that uh, reflective study is uh, needless. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't have to sit down and think and, and, and read commentaries and, 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 and pray and ask for wisdom and, uh, and, and uh, seek uh, uh, using reasonableness and diligent study what this passage actually, actually means. But uh, what it does mean is this, that everything that is essential to believe, everything that is essential, essential for salvation, uh, is propounded somewhere in Scripture very clearly. Um, uh, the so-called hierarchy of uh, doctrines. Substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died in my room and stead. That my sins were reckoned to him and his, his obedience, his righteousness is reckoned to my account. That, that is an absolutely essential doctrine. It's an absolutely essential doctrine. I, I, I cannot understand how somebody can be a Christian and not have some understanding of that basic truth of substitutionary atonement. Um, that, that is propounded somewhere in Scripture very clearly. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 uh, would certainly meet that. Uh, or justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That we are, that we are saved not by works um, but through faith, and that faith not of our own, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Or uh, the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, it seems to me that's an essential doctrine to believe, and uh, somewhere in Scripture that doctrine is clearly expounded. Uh, it ensures then uh, a sufficient understanding. Well, let me, let me move on. Uh, all, of, all that the perspicuity of the Bible uh, is, is trying to say is that the Bible is a book for the people. It's not a book for the academy, it's a book for the people. Uh, and that's why, that's why I love it uh, when people bring their Bible, their own Bible, uh, to church. I love it when I see Bibles that are, that are written on and their pages are turned down and they've got sticky notes uh, because this is a Bible that's being used and it's being studied. It's a, it's a, the Bible is for the people. And remember... Folk like William Tyndale were burnt at the stake just to provide a Bible in the English language. Uh, you know, he was prepared to die in order that the common man would have a copy of the scriptures in his own tongue. Now, let's move on to infallibility and inerrancy. Uh, the, the confession here talks about infallibility. Uh, inerrancy is a 20th century, actually it's a mid uh, 20th century term. It's a term that's become uh, crucially important. Uh, it's a term now that's, that's, uh, that's uh, been uh, used. Uh, um, I have to subscribe as a, as a professor for uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, I have to subscribe a document. I have to sign a document every April uh, in order to continue to do what I do. Uh, one of and on that is a statement about the inerrancy uh, of uh, Scripture. Uh, I, I regard functionally uh, infallibility and inerrancy to be the same thing. Now, in a dictionary, they mean slightly different things. But functionally, uh, when it comes to uh, an attribution of Scripture, infallibility and inerrancy function in precisely the same way. Uh, 
This very famous statement of John Wesley's, uh, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. That's a very famous, often cited uh, remark from the journals of uh, John uh, Wesley. Now, a syllogism. Uh, You all know what a syllogism is uh, in philosophy. Uh, There's a major premise and a minor premise and a conclusion. The major premise is uh, all of Scripture is God-breathed. The minor premise is God only speaks truth. The conclusion is, therefore, all Scripture is true and trustworthy. I mean, if all of Scripture comes from God and God can only speak truth, then all of Scripture is true. That's a syllogism. Uh, And and that is is, um, how theologians have got to the point of, of insisting that the doctrine of infallibility or the doctrine of inerrancy is an essential doctrine. It is a corollary uh, of the inspiration or the God-breathed nature of Scripture. Because, God, because all of Scripture is God-breathed, all of Scripture is true. There can be no mistakes in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's the logic, that's the syllogistic logic uh, of, uh, uh, of the doctrine of uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, a little bit about the history of the debate here, and I'm talking about the recent debate uh, in the last 50 years uh, and why the doctrine of inerrancy has become um, uh, a flashpoint. Uh, and it's become a flashpoint in churches, and it's become a flashpoint in seminaries. Uh, and two major seminaries within the last uh, 18 months have had flashpoints on inerrancy. Uh, Reform Seminary, uh, w- where I teach, uh, Bruce Waltke, a very, very famous name, uh, a man I dearly love, uh, who made a, a statement on YouTube uh, that seemed to deny inerrancy and, uh, and was... Uh, um, um, let go, let me put it that way. Uh, and uh, Peter Enns at Westminster Theological Seminary wrote a book uh, in which he said a number of things denying inerrancy and uh, he no longer teaches for Westminster Theological Seminary. So, so that the issue of inerrancy is, uh, is, a, is a flashpoint uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's still a flashpoint uh, today uh, in 2012. So let's uh, look a little bit at the history of it. Uh, in 1983, uh, that's, uh, that's not so long ago, we're ba- barely talking uh, 25 years here, uh, the National Meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, met in Pittsburgh uh, the year before. Some of you will remember in Chicago, uh, a number of people had died uh, because they had taken Tylenol that had been spiced with cyanide. And uh, the next year... Uh, In the pastor's meeting that begins the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the preachers produces a bottle of Tylenol and he holds it up uh, and he says, and and 25 years ago, inerrancy uh, was a flashpoint in the Southern Baptist Convention and and still is today. Um, He held up a bottle of Tylenol and he said, if I thought there was one tablet in here spiced with cyanide, I'd throw the whole bottle away. And then he picked up his Bible and he said, if I thought there was one error in this Bible and the whole audience shouted, I would throw the Bible away. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a very, very classic uh, Southern Baptist kind of illustration, uh, sort of gut string uh, illustration for sure. 
but actually, that, that is the point. That's what Wesley was saying. If there is one error in the Bible, how do you know where that error is? How do you assign the error to be something that's inconsequential? If, if there are errors of inconsequence, and you might, say, you might say there are numbers in the Old Testament that are wrong. You know, what's, what's, who, is the house going to come down because, because somebody has inserted 45,000 when actually it was 25,000? And you got a mistake. You know, that's a, that's a kind of inconsequential error. But how are you to assign? If you're saying the Bible is in its totality breathed out by God, if there is one error, there might as well be a thousand. And how do you assign errors only to matters that are inconsequential, but not to things that are of some consequence? Well, the kinds of things that are being spoken of today in the flashpoint of inerrancy are the historicity of Adam. You know, we're not, talking, we're not talking anymore about whether it should be 45,000 or 25,000 in, some, in some, some, some number somewhere in 2 in Chronicles. We're actually talking about a, an, an issue like, was there in fact a historical Adam? Um, so, 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 yes, uh, it is a slippery slope um, kind of argument here. Uh, and Wesley was saying, if there is one error in the Bible, there might as well be a thousand. Uh, if there is one untruth in the Bible, it didn't come from uh, the lips of uh, Almighty um, God. Uh, going back uh, a, a century, uh, the so-called Briggs uh, trial, uh, Charles uh, Augustus Briggs, uh, he's being inaugurated as the professor of Old Testament at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, he's having a, a little bit of a spat with uh, Benjamin uh, Breckenridge Warfield uh, on the side. Uh, that, that issue is taking place on the side. Um, somebody had donated something of the region of a quarter of a million dollars, which a, a century ago was a lot of money, to, to, uh, na- to, give, to give this name chair at uh, Union Seminary. And uh, Briggs is opening inaugural lecture when, you, when you're made a professor, at a, at a seminary or university, I mean a full professor, you have to give this lecture. Some of us have had that ordeal. Uh, and what you do, uh, well, Briggs, uh, Briggs gave the lecture the authority of Holy Scripture and uh, it set the place uh, on fire. This is what he said. Uh, but on what authority do these theologians drive men from the Bible by this theory of inerrancy? The Bible nowhere makes this claim. The creeds of the church nowhere sanction it. It is a ghost of modern evangelicalism to frighten children. Uh, well, the PCUSA, uh, which a uh, hundred years ago was, was more conservative uh, than it was liberal, uh, dismissed uh, Briggs uh, and Union Seminary uh, severed its ties with the PCUSA and Briggs was ordained uh, an Episcopalian. Uh, and the rest, as you say, uh, is history. Um, uh, then Daniel Fuller, uh, then uh, a faculty member at Fuller Seminary, uh, and he's addressing the Evangelical Theological Society. Um, I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, and he's addressing it in 1967. Uh, and he's saying that there are two kinds of scripture. Uh, one is called revelational, and that is inerrant. And the other is non-revelational, and that is not inerrant. So he's, he's propounding at the floor of the uh, Evangelical Theological Society in 1967 uh, a twofold view of Scripture, uh, a limited view of, in, of inerrancy. There are parts of Scripture that are inerrant, um, 
who is to decide who the, which parts are inerrant and which parts are not uh, is, is, is anybody's guess. Uh, but Scripture, uh, the long and the short of it, the conclusion of it is that Scripture contains errors. Um, I'll skip over Robert Gundry. Uh, his commentary on Matthew was a turning point in 1982. Uh, Bible uses all kinds of myths uh, and, and uh, spurious uh, genres, so you can't trust uh, the gospel story of the incarnation of Jesus, for example. It's just uh, pure mythology. Uh, and Gundry, of course, was a member of the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society. It's one of the most uh, conservative uh, bodies of professional theologians in the country. Um, and, uh, and he was summarily dismissed. Uh, and uh, uh, today you've got, uh, you've got others uh, chipping away at the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, my own dear friend, uh, Andrew McGowan, uh, he was my doctoral advisor, uh, wrote uh, just, as you can see, 2007, just five years ago, uh, the divine spiration of Scripture challenging evangelical uh, perspectives. And again, um, uh, uh, regards the doctrine of inerrancy as um, unnecessary and perhaps even irrelevant uh, to the discussion about the Bible. He has a very high view of Scripture, uh, but at the end of the day uh, can live with the idea that there are perhaps some errors uh, of some kind uh, um, subordinate, uh, of an an irrelevant kind uh, in the Scriptures somewhere. And then Peter ends, and uh, you've only got to Google his name, uh, and uh, it'll send you uh, to masses of uh, talk and blogs and uh, tweets and other things uh, about uh, Peter ends. Uh, and uh, he has now joined uh, with uh, Biologos, uh, and uh, Biologos uh, is uh, mainly concerned with issues about creation and evolution and is calling the church to embrace a form of, uh, of evolution at best, um, theistic evolution, and at worst, uh, a wholesale uh, Darwinian form uh, of evolution. Uh, enter the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It was a long statement, but it included 19 uh, 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 in statements uh, and, un- and articles, 11 to 19, Uh, governed uh, inerrancy. Uh, They are in the form of positive and negative statements. We affirm, we deny. Uh, You might want to look at some of the names involved in that council. Carl Henry, uh, James Boyce, uh, Packer, MacArthur, both of them senior and junior, Francis Schaeffer, Paige Patterson of of the Southern Baptists, uh, uh, Criswell, Spruill, Montgomery, Roger Nicole, Uh, and and others. Uh, Those names are very familiar to you, uh, who were some of the original drafters of the Chicago Statement on uh, Biblical Inerrancy. Let's look at some of these statements. Uh, We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. Uh, it's nuanced language uh, because it, it wants to, it wants to uh, understand that the Bible uses different genres. It talks about there are parables in the Bible that are not necessarily historically true. They are, they are specific story forms. 
um, there's poetry in the Bible and, and it uses the language of poetry and, and can use uh, non-exact language because that's the nature of poetry uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, we deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. Um, uh, we affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the field, uh, fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. Now that's not telling you um, how old the earth is. It's simply, saying, it's simply saying that the Bible teaches a doctrine of creation and the, doc- and the, and the Bible teaches uh, a flood. Uh, it doesn't actually commit you to interpreting um, whether the world or l- l- let me let me go on to l- let me hold that thought because i 'm going to address that on page eleven well th- there are there are uh, ten of these um, or is it nine uh, there are nine of these from eleven to nineteen uh, there are there are nine of these uh, articles uh, on inerrancy they 're worthy of uh, a couple of hours study uh, alone um, you may, uh, you may download uh, the entire um, uh, Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from the website. It's a much longer statement than, uh, than I have uh, inserted here. Now let's give a definition of inerrancy. What do we mean by the inerrancy of Scripture? Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the Scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. If the Bible is making a scientific statement, then it is true. Uh, what you have to uh, ask yourself is, is, this, is, is the Bible at this point actually making uh, a scientific uh, statement? Uh, Now, why is inerrancy important? Um, It's important because, uh, uh, as Jim Packer says, um, a factually and theologically untrustworthy Bible, um, you know, it could still do a whole lot for us. It it could still move us, uh, like, uh, uh, for me, a, a Brooklyn Symphony can move me. Uh, it can have, it can have uh, a, a tremendous impact uh, on you, but it cannot claim that what it is saying commands the authority of Almighty God. And it cannot be uh, a, a source uh, for a final authority in uh, conviction, in doctrine, or in uh, conduct, in ethics. Uh, that's why it is important. Uh, I would add to that Um, It it is important because it seems to me Jesus believed in the total inerrancy of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, When he says that scripture cannot be broken, 
Right? You can't tear it apart. You can't assign bits of it that are authoritative and bits of it that are not. Uh, it was in its total package something that was a, a, an authoritative uh, thing for, for Jesus. And uh, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think there's a Christological dimension here to the affirmation of uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. Now let me, let me talk briefly about the implications of inerrancy. Uh, number one, we may not deny or disregard or arbitrarily relativize anything that the biblical writers teach. Now, um, do the question you have to ask yourself, uh, you know, are things like uh, the flood. Does Genesis speak of a universal flood or is it a local flood? Uh, if, 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 and I'm not committing myself here and now on this issue. If the Bible commits to a universal flood, then you have, you have no basis to disregard it or to relativize it. Um, even, even if modern science is against you, um, the call to be a disciple of Jesus means, epistemologically, we, we commit ourselves to the authority of Scripture no matter what. Even, even if science appears at this stage in history, and it may be something else at another stage in history, folks, but even if at this stage in history science seems to be against you, or, or uh, the, the issue of young earth, or old earth, now, Conservative Christians who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture have read Genesis and have said a commitment to a young earth is not absolutely necessary. The day in Genesis can mean a long period of time. Uh, so, so has has is the earth uh, is the earth uh, you know. At best, even if you add into the genealogies of, G of Genesis, at best you're going to get around 50,000 years. Um, let's be generous. Let's, let's say half a million years. Let's be absolutely generous here. Half a million years. That's a long way from the universe's 13.5 billion years old, which is current scientific view. Right? So th these two are at, at, are at odds here. Um, uh, a commitment to inerrancy uh, does not mean, according to conservative, uh, inerrant believing Christians, uh, Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, have been on, on many different viewpoints as to the age of the earth and the understanding of Genesis. But there are lines over which you cannot cross. Uh, one of those lines would be um, the historicity of Adam. That there is no um, humanoid of any description that precedes Adam. Um, that, there, that there is a moment in the history of the world when there, there are only two people, Adam and Eve. And that the whole of humanity has descended from Adam and Eve. Now, if you, 
if you deny that, if you, if you think that Adam and Eve is just a, a, a blurry line spanning perhaps a million years in development from uh, various kinds of hominids to something that looks like a human being. Um, Romans 5 makes absolutely no sense. The, the, whole, the whole basis of Romans 5 is, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The, the doctrine of original sin in Romans 5 theologically is based on the premise that Adam was a historical figure. If you deny the historicity of Adam, the theology of Romans 5 goes out the window. So, the historicity of Adam is a, is a line in the sand. Uh, commitment to inerrancy doesn't commit you to, to a singular understanding of every conceivable passage in, in Scripture. Now, I, I have my own view. I'm still a young author. I see nothing in science that has moved me. Uh, I, I still believe in a, in a relatively young uh, earth. Um, uh, but uh, we'll come to that when we talk about creation uh, a little further down, uh, down the line. Uh, I would draw your uh, attention to another uh, top of page 13, a commitment to inerrancy um, means that you cannot, you cannot cut the knot of any problem of harmony. Let me put it in a different way, Uh, and you may want to write this in, in in a different way. A commitment to inerrancy commits you to harmonizing scripture. When you see two passages that seem to be in contradiction, you presuppose that they cannot actually be in contradiction. Your basic belief in inerrancy commits you to harmonization. Whether you can do the harmonization is irrelevant. You are committed to a principle of harmonization. Now, I've given you some examples on page 13. Um, the healing of the centurion's son in uh, Matthew 8 and Luke 7. You know, Matthew has the centurion speaking directly to Jesus. Luke has him send emissaries to speak on his behalf. Matthew often compresses accounts. When the emissary, a, a technical term uh, in uh, Aramaic, uh, shaliach, uh, spoke on behalf of someone, it was as though the person himself spoke. So when Luke says he sent uh, emissaries, that was true. And when Matthew says the centurion spoke, in the custom of the day, when the emissary spoke, it was was as, as though the centurion himself spoke. So something of a contextual understanding of the day harmonizes those two passages. Now... There are other examples here that I've given, and there are hundreds of them uh, in the Gospels. But what I'm, what I'm saying here is that a commitment to inerrancy, that the, Bible, that the whole Bible is the Word of God, and therefore the whole Bible is true, there can be no errors uh, in the Bible, commits you in advance, right? It's an advanced commitment to um, harmonization. Now, on uh, page uh, 15... I've given you a kind of table and a summary, uh, and it moves from left to right. I've deliberately put it that way. On the left are those for whom inerrancy is irrelevant, and on the right you've got those who are committed to total uh, inerrancy. Uh, And uh, um, 
the pastors of this church, lest you be wondering, are on that right-hand column. Uh, we are committed, uh, and actually by, uh, by vows that we took at Presbytery, uh, and, uh, and in my case, vows that I take annually at, uh, at the seminary, in addition to that, uh, I'm committed to uh, a view of total uh, inerrancy. But as you can see, uh, this is a flashpoint uh, today, and it's a flashpoint in the church. Uh, it's a flashpoint in our own church, I'm sure. Uh, it's a flashpoint in every conceivable denomination that I know of, conservative denominations, and it's a flashpoint in conservative seminaries uh, up and down the land. The battle for the Bible and the battle for the inerrancy of the Bible is still uh, with us uh, today. And it's, uh, it's, it's my view um, that it's a battle that has to be fought and a battle that has to be uh, won. Uh, because a, a Bible that has errors in it you might as well toss out. Uh, you can't commit your life. You can't commit your entire life and eternity on something that may have errors in it. Uh, because where are those errors? Uh, who's, to say, who's to say that those errors are only in matters that are relatively trivial? And not, in fact, in matters that are of some consequence and of some salvific, redemptive um, consequence. Well, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you once again for the Bible. Thank you for the word of God that men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We pray as we uh, read the scriptures uh, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, as we discern what it is that the scriptures are actually saying that we would commit ourselves uh, wholly, without reserve, to everything uh, that it teaches and everything uh, that it affirms. It is a light unto our path. Uh, we, we pray tonight for a blessing uh, upon each one of us, and uh, we commit ourselves now to you in Jesus' name. Amen.